and after today's lecture. In 2002, Robert DeButz, a descendant of Robert E. Lee and a corporate attorney in New York City, was doing research on some of the Lee family members who had played a significant role in Virginia's early history. In the process, he contacted an old schoolmate, E. Hunt Burke, now an officer of Burke and Herbert Bank and Trust Company in Alexandria. Mr. DeButz was hoping the bank might have records relating to Mary Custis Lee, eldest daughter of Robert E. Lee, because she had once had an account with Burke and Herbert. An investigation by the two men in the Burke and Herbert vaults revealed two large steamer trunks. They were chock full of priceless documents and artifacts. These materials were collected by Mary Custis Lee and she left them at the bank sometime before her death in 1918. They had been safely stored there and untouched since that time. And so a great new treasure of Lee family history came to light. Through the good efforts of Rob DeButz, an agent for the heirs of Mary Custis Lee's estate, the collection came to the VHS. It includes letters, journals, military documents, and a host of papers related not only to Mary Custis and her father, Robert E. Lee, but also to some of their ancestors. These included the Custises of the Eastern Shore and of Arlington House, and indeed George and Martha Washington themselves. The heirs to this remarkable collection wanted it preserved safely, and they wanted it shared with researchers. So the society's archivists were authorized to, to process the papers. The great bulk of them, I'm happy to say, will be ready and available for study just one week from today, on May the 31st. Today, the VHS takes this opportunity to thank the officers of Burke and Herbert Bank, some of whom are here with us in the audience. And in fact, I think I'll ask them to stand up. Uh, there are three, three of them are here. Bank Chairman and CEO Charles K. Cullum, Jr., Bank President and COO E. Hunt Burke, and Director of Marketing Tony Andrews. Thank you very much. And we'd also like to thank Rob DeButz and the heirs of Mary Custis Lee for preserving and sharing this extraordinary resource. And that brings me to our speaker today. She, by happy circumstance, had the good fortune to examine part of these papers while researching her new book. And I'm sure she'll confirm their great significance both for her own writing and for the research of others to follow. Our speaker, Elizabeth Pryor, has combined successful careers as both historian and senior diplomat in the American Foreign Service. She's the author of an award-winning biography of Clara Barton, whose nursing, nursing experience in the Civil War led her to found the American Red Cross. Wearing her diplomatic hat, Pryor most recently served as the senior advisor to the U.S. Congress's Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe. She's held a Mellon Research Fellowship here at the VHS in, in 2005 and again in 2006, so she's certainly no stranger to our library. In fact, you may have seen the article of hers that we published in the Virginia Magazine this past winter. It's a testimony to her detective skill because she discovered 
a letter by Robert E. Lee that predated what was previously thought to be his earliest letter. That alone was a remarkable discovery. But even more remarkable is the essay she wrote about this letter. It demonstrates her skill in drawing out a rich and insightful interpretation from one single scrap of paper. We are fortunate indeed to have her speak here today, only a few weeks after publication of her latest book called Reading the Man, a Portrait of Robert E. Lee Through His Private Letters. And of course, you'll have a chance to purchase a signed copy in our museum shop after the lecture. Reading the Man is the product of many years of research and rumination about Lee. I'll give you an idea of the extent of her commitment of time and thought in, a gen in the genesis of this book. Some years ago, when she was sent on a diplomatic mission to the Balkans, she was allowed to take only a severely restricted allotment of personal articles. And this was not just a, any appointment in the Balkans. This was as a diplomat in Sarajevo during the siege of that city. So you can, you can imagine she was restricted in what she could take uh, with her. But one of the things she made sure to take was her collection of Lee's letters. Please welcome an exceptionally gifted writer, public servant, and very good friend of the Virginia Historical Society, Elizabeth Pryor. Good afternoon. Of course, there's no place in the whole world I would rather be than right here at the Virginia Historical Society. Um, and there's almost nothing I've done in my life that makes me prouder than being a Mellon Fellow here in uh, 2005 and 2006. I've spent a, a fantastic amount of time here among the remarkable collections of this institution and with the remarkable staff. They're incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly friendly, great deal of expertise. And, you know, as a researcher, you, you can't always um, count on the kind of individual guidance that you get here. Um, so I will always be very, very proud of my association with this institution. Now, we've just had an announcement of the first importance about the Mary Custis Lee papers, and this is a hard act to follow. You can imagine what an amazing privilege it was for me to be able to use these, these papers. I don't know if Burton and uh, if Bertie Selvey and Bill Selvey are here or not, but they will remember that I was staying at their terrific bed and breakfast across the road, and one morning I said, oh, I'm going to call Rob DeButts and ask him if I can use these papers, and my heart is in my throat. I said, well, at least try and see if you can do it, and he, of course, said yes, and I was very, very thrilled, and not only did the Lee family show that kind of generosity, and the Virginia Historical Society, I suspect, um, aided and abetted that decision. But um, they put no restrictions at all on the way I used the materials that I, was, that I was able to use for the scope of the book that I was writing. And I find that extraordinary because the Lee family never asked me not to do this or not to do that, um, even to their discomfort. And I think that that deserves um, appreciation in itself. Using these papers was something like being given uh, a passage into Aladdin's cave. The, the number of treasures that were in there was extraordinary. 
and not just the letters that were signed by R.E. Lee, although there are a lot of them and very revealing documents. It was the fact that we have uh, documents in that collection that cover the history of slavery in Virginia, including letters written by slaves, which is very, very rare. Slaves were not allowed to read or write. And on the Custis estate, they were, they were given some education. And so you have these very rare firsthand accounts of slavery. There are legal documents that are very important. There are a number of papers that have to do with the establishment of the Evangelical Episcopal Church in this state. Um, a fantastic collection of letters from Lee's mother-in-law, who was an early anti-slavery activist, very courageous in her actions and very early in her actions. So I think we're all going to see riches coming from this collection for years to come. And, and it, it covers a great expanse, hundreds of years. I was using the, the set of papers that only covered the period that I was working on, which was Robert E. Lee's lifetime. But I understand that there are 17th century documents in this collection. Um, there are certainly documents that go well into the end of the 19th century. And I, I tell you, it sends shivers down your spine what is in, what is in those trunks, trunks of more precious than gold, truly. Now, I understand that you're an unusually knowledgeable audience, um, which is the best kind, also the most challenging kind. So I want to leave as much time as possible to have a real dialogue with you and not just talk at you. What I thought I'd do was talk a bit about how I came to write the book and then speak for a few minutes about one of the issues on which the papers, new papers that I've found, um, challenge us. And that has to do with Robert E. Lee's decision to join the South in 1861. You know, if you search through the Library of Congress card catalog, you'll find about 500 entries that have to do with Robert E. Lee, and you'll find thousands that have to do with the Civil War. So it was not immediately apparent that the world needed another book about Robert E. Lee. <laughs> but I knew that there were a lot of um, unexplored papers out there because I had had the good fortune to read another cache of private letters at a time that I was doing some research for the National Park Service a number of years ago before I went to graduate school. And it became something, a kind of a treasure hunt for me to find these papers that had been overlooked or uh, underused or in some cases I think actually willfully ignored. And I was absolutely riveted by what I found in these letters. I really hadn't had a preconception about Robert E. Lee. I knew the basic outline of his life, what I like to call the exoskeleton, but I was neither in awe of him nor did I have an idea that he was maybe a symbol of treachery or oppression, as some people do. I think like his friend Mary Boynkin Chestnut, I thought he was maybe too cold, quiet, and grand to be of much interest. But as I said, I was absolutely riveted by these letters, which showed a person far more complex and contradictory than we normally assume. First of all, he was a marvelous letter writer. He's expressive, he's witty, he's lusty, he's thoughtful, he's vulnerable, and he's always charming. Um, so he made very good company in Sarajevo as well. One of the reasons I took those letters to Sarajevo was because he was good company during a siege when I knew that he'd been in some sieges, spent some Christmases alone, and so on. Second of all, the letters are very revealing. You know, he had no premonition of fame. He didn't think of himself as a tragic, heroic figure, and so he wrote very unselfconsciously for most of his life. Even during the war, 
I see a difference after the war. The curtain comes down a little bit, and he's a little bit more guard, guarded. But for the most tar- part, these are very guileless letters. They are very open. Um, and so they show a personality that's richer and deeper and maybe also more problematical uh, than we've thought, quite unlike that simple Christian gentleman who is so often portrayed. And in fact, I came to believe that we do him a great injustice when we trivialize him in that way. So I had all these letters, which taken together constitute almost an autobiography of Lee. And he didn't keep a journal except for a few brief periods of his life. He never wrote his memoirs. But but the sheer number of these letters um, and the fact that in many places we have almost a day-by-day account of his feelings gives you a tremendous amount of material of how he was perceiving his life as he lived through it. I had all these letters. I had a wonderful set of characters. I had one of the most gripping stories in American history, but also one of the most overwritten stories in American history. So what to do? And I decided to use the letters as departure points for what I called historical excursions to the unexplored corners of of Lee's world. So each chapter starts with a letter. Almost all those letters have not been published before. A few have. Um, And then it's followed by an essay on an aspect of Lee that maybe hasn't been fully explored. And I let the letters take us where they lead. I talk about him as an engineer. I talk quite a lot about slavery, discuss the concept of leadership, who influenced his leadership style, and who influenced his military style. And I also discuss historical documents and how we use them and how they've changed over time. One reviewer called the book a kind of dialogue between the author and her subjects and between our century and theirs. And I liked that description. That was exactly what I was trying to get at. So the book is a little bit different than the standard cradle-to-grave chronological uh, biography, nor is it a step-by-step walk through every Civil War battle. Nearly half the book is about the war or its aftermath, but I haven't attempted to refight every skirmish. Those books have already been written, and they've been written really well, and so I didn't think I need to recover that ground. Rather, I was interested in challenging my assumptions and asking some larger questions about the war, about the relationships that Lee had with his men and with the the politicians in Richmond and the way he made decisions, how those decisions affected him, and, of course, in some cases, how they still affect us today. Now, here are the author's tips on reading the book. It's a big book, but it's not as intimidating as it looks. The last third of the book is notes and uh, bibliography and so on, so it's not quite as big a bite to chew on as you might think. Now, I'm not going to tell you not to read the footnotes because the author knows that a lot of the juicy stuff is in the footnotes. You can, you can also read the chapters separately. Um, because they're written as essays, they're meant to be uh, sort of self-sustaining. And if you read every chapter, you will get pretty much his whole life. But if you are only interested in the Mexican War, you can read just that essay, or if you're only interested in his life after the war, you can read those. And so you can pick it up and put it down, and that was my intention when I wrote it. The one thing I would say is I would encourage people to read the preface. Often people don't read prefaces, but that's where the author tells you what it is their goal is. And in this case, it um, sort of sets a framework for the use of these letters and also tells, the, I think, again, a riveting story of, of 
why do we even have these letters after this cataclysmic war? Lee, in his own lifetime, thought all of his personal papers had been lost or destroyed, um, and yet we have thousands and thousands of documents that really cover every aspect of his life. Now, you would think that all of these new documents answer a lot of questions, and in some cases they do. It was long assumed, for example, that Robert E. Lee went to West Point because his family was a bit down on its luck and that this was the only way his mother could afford to give him an education. But one of the things we've now established is that Lee talked his mother into it and that he almost immediately started questioning his career choice, and he questioned it his whole life. It was something he wrestled with. How I wish I'd taken my poor mother's advice and never entered the Army, he writes. As early as 1830, which is the year after he graduates from West Point. So the papers clear up some old mysteries, but in other cases they raise fresh questions. Um, and Dr. Langford referred to one of those in, a, in an essay that I wrote for the Virginia Magazine. One of the questions it raised is whether he was actually born in, in 1807 or not, because there's conflicting documentation about that. Most of the information, though, what it does is it indicates that we need to look at our standard notions about Robert E. Lee with maybe more complexity or more subtlety. Nowhere is this more evident than in how Lee made his decision, or maybe I should say decisions, to side with the South. I say decisions because he made three separate choices in as many days in April 1861. The decision not to command the Union forces, his decision to resign from the U.S. Army, and another decision to take up command of Virginia's forces. And all of those were distinct, and one did not necessarily lead to another. The decision I want to speak of today is the U.S. Army. It's usually presented in a very simplified form, almost a principled stand by a one-dimensional man. Answer he was born to make, says one historian. It wasn't as if he had any choice, says another a no-brainer, says a third. We're not naming names here. <laughs> but it's this kind of trivialization I think does an injustice to the truly wrenching system, system yeah, excuse me, truly wrenching situation that Lee found himself in. I don't think it's overstated to say this was a Shakespearean moment in American history when the terrible divisions of the country and the moral dilemmas that many families faced became embodied in this one person. Lee's wife called it the severest struggle of his life. We have many accounts of how he spent days pacing and praying as he wrestled with his competing loyalties. And after the war, Lee himself said that the moment was so terrible that he sat on his resignation letter for a day. He couldn't bring himself to send it. So this image of a strong man in despair as he looks at a set of irreconcilable choices is so dramatic precisely because the decision was not inevitable. In fact, he had many options, options that others in his situation took and that he soberly considered. So let's look at the factors that went into his deliberations and some of the emotional conflicts that Lee had to face. We have to look first at the backdrop of Lee's experience. He spent 34 years in the U.S. Army, and West Point purposefully instilled a profound dedication to national service encouraging cadets to rise above local allegiances and to become a source of leadership for the entire nation. 
And because they were posted all over the United States, these officers also had the opportunity to know the country in a way that most people in the 19th century didn't. Remember how hard transportation was and how unknown and vast this territory was. Lee's career had sent him surveying the Northwest Territory, wrestling with the currents in the Mississippi River, patrolling Texas Indian frontiers, and designing coastal fortifications up and down the East Coast. Now, can anybody guess what state Robert E. Lee spent the most time in between the age of 18 and the outbreak of the Civil War, so during his adult life? I can't see too well, but so... But it, can anybody guess what state that was? I heard I heard somebody say New York, Texas. What other other guesses? Maryland, Missouri. Uh, I didn't hear what that one was, but people liked it. Um, well, uh, those are all good answers because he spent a lot of time in all those places. But it was New York, actually. Spent four years as a cadet there. Spent four and a half years at Fort Hamilton in the New York Harbor in charge of that fort. And he spent two and a half years as superintendent of West Point. In 1856, Lee declared that the country, and this is a quote from him, that his country was the whole country, that its limits contained no north, no south, no east, no west, but embraced the broad union in all its might and strength, present and future. On that subject, my resolution is taken and my mind fixed. And then with underlined emphasis, he concluded, I know no other country, no other government than the United States and their constitution. So, 1856, how do we get from there to 1861? Lee was in Texas during much of the time the nation's political divisions were worsening, and he wrote from there that the talk among all his colleagues was how they were going to personally respond to this crisis. And the dilemma was a terrible one, for army officers who had to face these competing loyalties and who had grown to to identify with the entire country. The stories from this time absolutely throb with anguish. Albert Sidney Johnston, who was Jefferson Davis's favorite general, um, was posted in San Francisco at the time that South Carolina seceded, and he hoped he could sit out the war there and stay in the U.S. Army and just be out there in California away from it. But back in Washington, they started suspecting him because of his southern... uh, connections, and they relieved him of his command, and he went overland across the United States. I can't even imagine what this must have been from San Francisco to Texas, and as he says, weeping in a state of despair. Joseph Johnston, who's a Virginian, who was a good friend of Robert E. Lee's, was one of his roommates at West Point, had to be escorted from the rooms of the Secretary of War in a state of collapse when he tendered his resignation. Louis Armistead, who was the nephew of the general who defended Fort McHenry on the night of the Star-Spangled Banner, tearfully grabbed his friend Winfield Scott Hancock by the shoulders and said, Hancock, Hancock, goodbye. You can never know what this has cost me. And Armistead was cut down by Hancock's men during Pickett's charge. These men chose to fight for the Confederacy, as did Lee, but not all Southern Army officers made that decision. In all, about two-fifths or 40% of the officers from Virginia stayed with the United States Army, fought for the Union when their state seceded and endured varying degrees of censorship for that decision. Winfield Scott, the general-in-chief of the Army, and Robert E. Lee's mentor, also a Virginian, he felt his path lay with the Union. When he was approached by Virginia state officials, he dismissed it as an insult, any suggestion that he would renege on his solemn oath of loyalty to the United States. 
So did another Virginian, George Thomas, with whom Lee had spent his Christmases when he was in Texas. Both Thomas and Scott would suffer ostracism for their choices, and in fact, Thomas's relatives never uh, contacted him again except to ask him to change his name. <laughs> Others opted not to fight on any side. Dennis Hartmann, who was a famed West Point instructor and another proud Virginian, chose not to uphold a cause he believed to be unworthy, and he stayed at West Point during the war. North Carolinian Albert Mordecai resigned his commission, but he rejected an offer, an offer to be either the um, Confederate Ordnance Service chief or the head of the engineer department, and he spent the war years teaching mathematics in Philadelphia. So each person had to face the terrible moment for himself. This is not to say that these men made the right decision and Lee made the wrong one, but it's hard to say that there was anything inevitable about the way these decisions were made. Lee's case was particularly complex. While he was in Texas, he had first-hand experience of the secession movement there, which he disapproved of, and one eyewitness recalls him weeping at the news when Texas finally seceded. As the Texans moved toward disunion, Lee was actually in charge of the forces there and was pressed to give up United States assets to the secessionists. He flatly refused and said on several occasions that this is a quotation from Lee. They could not get these arms without fighting for them. One of the many ironies of history is that had the secessionists forced the issue, as they did later at Fort Sumter, the Civil War might have begun there, and defending the Union property against the rebels would have been Colonel Robert E. Lee. Lee was greatly troubled about all of this and wrote many letters from Texas during the winter of 1861, and they are anguished letters that show him to be at odds with himself they're full of phrases such as, I shall never bear arms against the United States, but it may be necessary for me to carry a musket in defense of my native state, Virginia, in which case I shall not prove recreant to my duty. At least one historian finds this statement actually delusional because a person of the stature that Lee had in the military was certainly not going to be a foot soldier carrying a musket someplace. Or how about this supreme moment of confliction? While I wish to do what is right, I am unwilling to do what is wrong, either at the bidding of the South or the North. So this is painful and convoluted thinking. Lee says he is against secession. He calls it anarchy and nothing but revolution. And it's interesting because after the war, he jumps through some hoops to try to justify his decisions and sort of get it right politically that I think shows that he's still working through the issue. But in 1861, he was very clear that he did not believe this was a constitutional right. He also says he's against slavery, though he backs every pro-slavery position of the day from the belief that the abolitionists were destroying the country. He called them irresponsible and unaccountable to support for the Crittenden Compromise, which would have guaranteed the permanent existence of American slavery. It actually had a clause in it that said it could never be abolished. Lee says about that, it deserves the support of every patriot. He also nearly parrots the classic pro-slavery argument that blacks were better off in slavery than in Africa, and that slavery was a greater burden for the whites than the blacks. And those of you who've read the pro-slavery pamphlets and propaganda of the 1850s and 60s, or letters of men such as George Fitzhugh or James Henry Hammond, will recognize how exactly Lee hews to that pro-slavery line of thinking. Now, the one place that Lee is very consistent is in his determination to follow Virginia's lead. He never wavers from this. 
What he does hope, however, is that Virginia will remain in the Union, allowing him to keep all his loyalties intact. He can be loyal to the U.S. Army, he can be loyal to the United States, he can be loyal to his state, loyal to his family. This, in essence, would have resolved the conflict for him, the personal conflict for him. I'm particularly anxious that Virginia sh should keep right, he told his daughter Agnes in January 1861. I would wish that she might be able to save the Union. And so he's greatly distressed when Virginia does secede. And there are many firsthand accounts of Lee's very somber demeanor after Virginia voted for secession and how it was in contrast to the general jubilant mood of the public. His first reaction was to sit out the conflict. After he was offered command of the Union troops, he went to the offices of Winfield Scott and proposed that he could not lead forces against the South and that he should sit out the war at Arlington. And in what must have been a terrible moment, Scott, who, one of the people he respected most in the world and looked up to, said to him, Lee, your attitude is equivocal. There's no place in my army for uncommitted men, and if you're going to resign, you'd better do it now. This is a horrible moment for Lee. We know that he went off that night and had dinner with his brother Smith and that he spent most of that dinner with his head in his hands. An easy decision, a no-brainer. Another important factor, of course, is the question of Lee's loyalty to his family. And an interesting twist in Lee's thinking seems to be what he perceived to have been his father's beliefs. Now, you'll recall that Light Horse Harry Lee was a Revolutionary War hero, but abandoned his father when Robert was a young child, and Robert didn't really know his father. During the war, his brother Smith Lee remarks that Light Horse Harry was used as a pressure point to spur him to join the Southern cause. And Lee at one point also said he was educated at home to follow his state. One of Robert Lee's colleagues in Texas recalled the strongly pro-federalist stance of Light Horse Harry and of his older sons who actually wrote pamphlets about the importance of a strong federal government and remembered asking Robert, from whence came this education? And Lee couldn't answer him. He said simply, I can't help feeling as I do. He may have genuinely believed that his father followed Virginia's lead in all things, but this too was a mirage. In fact, Light Horse Harry had led the army that defeated the first local challenge to federal authority during the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794, been appointed to that by George Washington. He'd also eloquently defended a constitution that began with the words, we the people, rather than we the states, which is what Patrick Henry wanted to have it begin with. In one letter, Light Horse Harry Lee did call Virginia his country and says he should follow her lead, but he also very plainly states that the nation's happiness, and again, this is a quote from Light Horse Harry, depends entirely on maintaining our union, and that in point of right, no state can withdraw itself from that union. It's not clear that Robert E. Lee knew this, and there's some poignant letters after the war in which he asks his brother Carter whether he had gotten it right about Light Horse Harry's attitudes, as if to still try to maybe reconcile his own view on the subject. Another issue that often comes into play when we think about Robert E. Lee's decision is the notion of honor. Lee, in fact, only uses this word twice. Once in a letter to his cousin, Marky Williams, in which he says he'll have to make his decisions consistent with honor. And once when he's writing his resignation and he uses the 19th century pro forma phrase, I have the honor to. 
the notion of honor is a very tricky one, particularly at that time period, because honor was in the eyes of the beholder in 1861. For example, Lee was legally an honor bound to the army and to the Union, having sworn to maintain loyalty to the United States. Here's the oath he took. Maintain loyalty to the United States above all allegiance, sovereignty, or fealty I may owe to any state, county, or country whatsoever. He took similar oaths each time he received a new commission. Um, and in fact, the last time we know he took it was probably on March 20th. Abraham Lincoln had promoted him to a full colonel in the 1st Cavalry. He accepted that commission and took the oath. One of the examples of the competing ideas of honor is one, that one of the concerns that caused Lee to resign quickly, which was the worry that he might be ordered by the army to take aggressive action against the South. And in military circles, it was dishonorable to resign because of unwelcome orders. Lee acted on this definition of honor at the same time he was dishonoring vows of more than 30 years. The notion of what constituted honor wasn't even consistent within his own family. Here's what one of his first cousins said about the decision. I feel no exalted respect for a man who takes part in a movement in which he can see nothing but anarchy and ruin, and yet that very utterance scarce passed Robert Lee's lips when he starts off with delegates to treat with traitors. Mary Lee says he spent two days consulting scripture. I wish he'd consulted his commission as well as the Bible. Again, not to say that Lee made the wrong decision, but that the factors that went into this and the number of competing conflicts and difficulties and emotional issues that he had to deal with must have been very, very great. One concern that seems to have motivated Lee, which may be related to his notions of honor, was the bullying of the North, which he'd been complaining about since the 1830s. Lee disliked the abolitionists. He feared an increasingly powerful Northern majority, but it was the horror of lost self-esteem and the rage of not being able to defend oneself in the face of what he saw as mounting humiliations that really got to him. Secession became the most honorable option to Southerners because it showed independence and a spirit of self-protection. And many of those who chose to fight for the South gave this as the reason for their fierce determination. And throughout the war, the reaction against subjugation, they often say, was a strong motivating force. Now, this might more rightly be called pride, a cousin of honor. Southerners didn't see it that way. So it's difficult to conclude that there was any one right path to honor in 1861. Lee developed an official explanation for his action that he would repeat nearly verbatim to the end of his days. As he often did in times of distress, his response is like one of the formulas that was dear to his engineer's heart. Simple, symmetrical, unvarying, seemingly watertight. But even his formulaic language, I think, gives an impression quite the opposite from banal inevitability. The repetition speaks to his distress and suggests that he felt he must hew to a strict line to avoid its contradictions. Now, here's his official line. This is a letter that he wrote to his cousin, Roger Jones, on April 20th, 1861, from Arlington, the same day that he wrote his resignation. And he says... My dear cousin Roger, I only received today your letter of the 17th, sympathizing with you in the troubles that are pressing so heavily upon our beloved country and entirely agreeing with you in the notions of allegiance, etc. I have been unable to make up my mind 
to raise my hand against my native state, my relations, my children, and my home. I have therefore resigned my commission in the army and never desire again to raise my sword, save in defense of my state. I consider it useless to go into the reasons that influenced me. I can give no advice. I merely tell you what I have done that you may do better. Wishing you every happiness and prosperity, I remain faithfully your kinsman, Ari Lee. Lee had really hoped to avoid pitting himself against his family, but that desire would also remain unfulfilled. Cousin Roger Jones, to whom he wrote that letter, finally decided to fight for the Union. Samuel Phillips Lee, his first cousin, never wavered from his northern loyalties, giving distinguished service in the United States Navy until the end of the war. His younger brother, John Fitzgerald Lee, an 1834 West Point graduate, retained his position as judge advocate of the Union Army. Cousin John H. Upshur also resisted his family's tremendous pressure in order to defend the Union. A young relative of his wife, Lawrence Williams, served as aide-de-camp to General George McClellan. Philip Fendall, a cousin who had supported Lee's mother after the disappearance of Light Horse Harry, also remained with the Union, and two of his sons were in blue uniform. Lee's sister, Anne Lee Marshall, was also not in agreement with her brother. Her son fought with General John Pope against his uncle. No one in that family ever spoke to Robert Lee again. With great reluctance, Smith Lee joined the Confederate uh, joined the Confederacy as a naval officer, where he served without enthusiasm, and as late as September 1863, still pitched into those responsible for getting us into this snarl, <laughs> saying that both the Lees and his in-laws, the prominent Mason family, had pressured him with ideas that Virginia came first. He grumbled, South Carolina be hanged. How I did want to stay in the old Navy. His wife tried to reverse the decision of their son, who was Fitz, who, Fitz Lee, one of the great cavalry generals, to reverse his pro-South decision, and herself remained in the nation's capital until she said, as she said, she was dragged away from Washington kicking. Robert E. Lee's three sons joined the Confederate forces, but only after their father had declared his intentions, and that's something I'd like to know more about. We know that uh, his eldest son seems to have been reluctant to leave the um, U.S. Army. I would love to know more about the, the independent decisions and thinking that those, that those young men had. But there is a strong chance that if Lee had made a different decision, they may have followed his lead. Now, if Lee had stayed with the Union, he would still have faced confrontation within his border state family, for an equal number of cousins fought for the Confederacy. But his assertion that he was acting in simple solidarity with a like-minded group of relatives would never be borne out. Again, none of this is to say that Robert E. Lee made the wrong decision. He made the decision that he had to make. But I find it difficult to characterize Lee's decision as the only path available to him, as foreordained, as a no-brainer. And I think to characterize it in that way does a disservice to what was an intensely painful moment. There is not a person in this room, I think, who would have wanted to face what he faced between April 18th and April 22nd, 1861. Part of the enduring fascination with Lee is his intense personal struggle, which did become emblematic of the nation's torment. His decision came to represent something more than a divided country or a divided regional fidelity. It went beyond a divisive vote on secession or a shattered family. It strikes a timeless chord because it evokes that lowest of all miseries, the nightmare of a divided soul. So I'm going to end there.
and take your questions, let you have at me, and look forward to your challenging me.